Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Our text this morning will overlap a little bit with what we looked at last week. Uh, we're starting in uh, the second half of verse 10 and then reading through to the end of verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's Peter describing, yet again, the psychology, the behavior of the false teachers that he's so concerned with. Uh, This is the third week that we've talked about false teachers in the church And next week, we'll be on the topic as well, because this entire chapter is devoted to false teachers, which is admittedly an uncomfortable thing to talk about, and potentially uh, a seemingly judgmental thing to harp on, right? We always want to be charitable in the way that we view others, and certainly within the church, we want to extend charity to even the the teaching of others. And and as a teacher, I certainly appreciate it if I happen to misspeak, if you give me the benefit of the doubt and don't immediately file heresy charges against me. We all want that presumption in our favor. And yet Peter focuses on this phenomena of false teachers in the church, and it's important for us to come to terms with it, to understand what's behind this warning that he takes so seriously. Now, this description, this discourse on false teachers that you find in 2 Peter chapter 2 has an analog in the book of Jude. The book of Jude, which is just one chapter, is essentially the same as what we're studying in 2 Peter chapter 2. In some cases, Jude gives a little bit more detail. In others, Peter gives a little bit more. But they're clearly addressing the same issue, and they're addressing it with a lot of the same ideas so that when you want to understand Second Peter 2, it's really helpful to go to the book of Jude to take a look. Now, when Jude talks about false teachers and he connects them to the Old Testament, to the false prophets of the Old Testament, he actually gives three examples, Jude does. Jude's examples, he starts with Cain, and then Balaam, and then Korah, the rebellion of Korah that happened in the days of Moses. Peter only gives one of those examples, and it's the story of Balaam. And it's interesting that that's the one that Peter chooses, because the story of Balaam is, uh, in some ways, the most fantastic 
of those tales. You'll find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. We won't look at the entire passage, but but Balaam, just so you know, was a false prophet. As, as Peter explains, he was a prophet of God who liked money, like he was seduced by greed. And so his prophecy was influenced more by the expectation of gain than it was by the word of the Lord. As the children of Israel under Moses have left Egypt and they're growing in power, the kings of the surrounding regions become very nervous. The king of Moab is worried that the Israelites will overwhelm his domain, and so he sends to Balaam. He sends to this prophet so that he will curse the children of Israel. He's essentially trying to use this prophet's word in order to defeat the children of Israel. So Balaam goes along with this plan. He gets on his donkey and he rides off to issue the curse. But God places an angel in the path, an angel with a sword in hand. Interestingly, Balaam, who is supposedly a prophet, who supposedly has this insight into the ways of God, doesn't recognize the angel blocking his path, but his donkey does. And not wanting to run into the path of that angelic sword, the donkey turns away. And as she does, uh, Balaam whips her to try to get her to go. So she turns away again. She turns away, in fact, against a, a stone wall and and uh, pins his foot, hurts him. And he gets really angry and starts beating the donkey. Now, at this moment, God gives the donkey the gift of speech. And if you go back to Numbers 22, you'll get what has to be a pretty unprecedented passage in Scripture where a man and his, his donkey have a conversation. And, and neither of them reflects on the oddity of this. Balaam doesn't show any surprise that the donkey is speaking for the first time. The donkey speaks and basically says, why are you beating me? In all the years that I've served you, have I ever misbehaved? Have I ever led you wrong? And Balaam's like, well, no. Well, the donkey says, what do you think is going on now? Why do you think I'm behaving this way? Shouldn't this be a clue to you that something is going on? And Balaam's like, eh, but he doesn't get it. Until finally God opens his eyes and he sees the angel standing there and recognizes the danger that he's been in. Now, this false prophet who has embarked on a plan to curse Israel will be compelled by God instead to bless Israel, which is not what he set out to do, and it certainly wasn't for him the profitable path. But that's the story, that's the tale that Peter uses to give us an example of the origin of the false teachers in the church. If you want to know what they're like, look at Balaam, because they've traveled down that same path. It's interesting. I think it's very appropriate that um, this is the story that Peter uses because the moral of this story, so to speak, corresponds directly to the themes that he's already introduced. The moral, if I were to put it into words, would go something like this. When men are blind to angels, they live like animals until God raises up an animal to save them. When men are blind to angels, they live like animals until God raises up an animal to save them. So in the story of Balaam, there are three characters, right? There's the angel, there's the man, and there's the beast. But they don't all play the part that creation has given them to play. The man, although he's a prophet, is blind to the existence 
of the angel. As a result of that, he doesn't respond as a human being ought in the presence of this angelic being. But the beast finds herself acting like a man, going up a level where the man has descended, so to speak, in Peter's terms, acting in an irrational way. The beast has ascended. The beast is given the power to speak by God in order to, quoting Peter, restrain the prophet's madness. So it makes sense that Peter would choose this example to illustrate the problem of false teachers because the false teacher, according to Peter, is blind to the existence of what Peter calls the glorious ones. That the false teacher is, in fact, a man acting as if he were no better than a beast. If we go to the beginning of our text and hear these words again, think of the resonance with the story of Balaam. Bold and willful, Peter writes, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, the false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, this idea that Peter refers to as blaspheming the glorious ones is a little bit ambiguous in the original. It's hard to know exactly from this context alone what he means by blaspheming the glorious ones. When we refer to something as glorious, we have positive associations with that. When we think of it being possible to blaspheme against something glorious, it seems like clearly these glorious ones are something good, but that's actually not the case. If we compare the book of Jude, you'll see that something else is going on here. The phrase that the ESV translates here as glorious ones is uh, translated a little less literally in the NIV as celestial beings. So we're talking about something above humanity. But if you look at Jude, Jude actually makes it clearer that what we're talking about are, are probably something like fallen angels. So their gloriousness consists that they're created as angels, but they aren't the good angels, they're the bad angels. So how do you blaspheme bad angels? You might think, well, perhaps we should be cursing the bad angels because they're bad. But what it seems to be that's going on here is that the false teacher blasphemes the glorious one, the celestial beings, uh, essentially by acting as if and teaching as if they don't exist. And the way that they do it is by living lives as if there are no consequences for the sins that they indulge in. Now you know from Paul's teaching that when we succumb to sin, one of the consequences is we deliver ourselves into bondage. There's a bondage that the sinner is um, enduring. False teachers live a life of sin, and they live as if there are no spiritual consequences for those actions, as if there are no bad angels, as if there are no glorious ones to whom they deliver themselves, hand themselves over when they live this way. The angels, Peter says, wouldn't dare to do this. The good angels. Jude gives the example of the archangel Michael, 
who, when in battle on behalf of the Lord, even though he is in the right, will not speak ill of, of the bad angels that, that he fights against out of respect for their createdness, their former glory. He respects their power. Do you see what I'm saying? The false teacher doesn't. The false teacher doesn't. And because of that, Peter calls it ignorance, because he's ignorant of the reality of, of these higher spiritual beings, he lives like an animal. He lives like an animal, Peter says. Another way of thinking about this is that false teachers live as if nothing is real apart from the material world. They're blind to any reality higher than the one we see with our eyes. And when you're blind in that way, it kind of makes sense to live the way that Peter says false teachers do. If you consider the logic of their behavior, if only the material world is real, then sin has no higher consequences. When you do bad things, you're not handing yourself over to some sort of spiritual bondage because there's nothing there to hand yourself over to. Maybe there's consequences when you do bad things, but those consequences kick in when you get caught doing bad things. And the implication is that false teachers in the church are pretty good at not getting caught doing bad things. Uh, masters of hypocrisy. Sin has no higher consequences if there are no higher spiritual realities. Also, if only the material world is real, then living a life of self-sacrifice in hope of a future reward in the next life, that's foolish. Because you're sacrificing your happiness now in expectation of a reward that's never coming. Because the people you think, the beings you think are going to bestow it on you don't exist. So the suffering that you endure, the selflessness that you model, it's for nothing. It's for nothing. The smart way to live, if only the material world is real, is to pursue your material desires. The pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of material well-being, pursuit of wealth, success, all of those things. And we think of those as good. We go to seminars and classes to learn better how to pursue those things. But the Bible talks about the pursuit of pleasure as leading to lust and gluttony, indulgence in the physical. The pursuit of material wealth is leading to greed and selfishness. Sins, vices that we hand ourselves over to when we live as if there is no world but this one. Now, listen to Peter's words with this materialism in mind as he describes the conduct of false teachers and imagine those false teachers as people who don't believe that there are any powers above them who believe they can live however they want this is what he says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime in other words their sin they do in broad daylight they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. That word trained in greed is um, literally the, the word that we get our word gymnasium from. So it's like they exercise greed. It's like they, they work out their greed constantly. They're really good 
at it. That description, obviously coming from Peter's lips, paints a pretty horrible picture of these false teachers. But as you look at that description, you can imagine a sense in which all of these behaviors might seem to be justified. Indeed, good as long as you don't believe that there is anything higher, any reality higher than the world that we live in now. The thing is, though, these false teachers, they would be no danger to us if they weren't telling us things our hearts want to hear. The reason why Peter has to devote so much time to denouncing and rebuking false teachers in the church is because he knows that the message of the false teacher is one that resonates, that the life of the false teacher is one that easily seduces those around him because we all have a false teacher within. Well, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3, Pastor John mentioned that the false teachers that Peter is talking about specifically are, are teachers in the church. So we're not drawing a line between us and, us and them and saying, well, out in the world there's all this false teaching, so you need to come in here so that you can get the true teaching. Instead, we're saying that even here, even within the church, even in the leadership of the church, among those who are influential, those who seem to have knowledge, those who teach, even there, there's a need for discernment. Even there, we should ask questions, right? That it's possible for the false teachers not just to be out there, but also to be in here. And that's true. But we can take this farther. This warning against false teachers is not just addressed to the false teachers out there in the church body, but also to the false teacher in here, in the human heart, in the fallen heart, even of believers. It's true that the lives and the doctrine of the false teachers out there make a mockery of the salvation that they claim to possess. But it's equally true that the false teacher in here does exactly the same thing. It makes a mockery of the salvation that we claim to possess. We all have a false teacher within. There's a part of you that wants to revel in daylight, that wants to be able to do what you want to do without any shame attached to it. There's a part of you that deceives, despite your communion with Christ in this sacred feast. We always come to the table unworthily. Unworthily, because there's a part of us that wants to continue in wrongdoing. There's a part of you that is never satisfied. Whatever desires are inside of you, whatever you've realized and achieved, there's a part of you that says it's not enough. There's always more to pursue. There's more pleasure, a lot of it sinful, that we need in our lives. There's a part of you that is not only leading yourself astray, but could easily lead others astray as well, through your example. There's a part of you that exercises and exerts itself in greed. And the reason for that is that we are all together children of wrath, as Paul would say. Or at least, we used to be. We used to be. That's changed. Listen to Paul's words. This is in 
Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's language very similar to the language that Peter uses in describing the false teachers and their irrationality in in their lives lived by instinct alone. That we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath. But then verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That life we have in Christ, if you think about it, is what Peter was talking about at the very beginning of the book. In the first sermon that we we talked about on 2 Peter, we talked about being partakers of the divine nature. And one of the things I tried to show was the way in which we are partakers of the divine nature is by being humans made in the image of God. So that what God is doing by his grace is not, as it were, lifting up human beings so that they can be like the angels. Rather, he's taking human beings who have become less than what they were meant to be. Human beings who, because of sin, live like the animals and restoring to us our full humanity. All of us, because of our sin, have lived the way that Peter says false teachers live. All of us have lived irrationally. All of us guided by sinful instinct. The gospel changes that by making us human again. And making us human again. We were humans living as if we were animals because we were under the curse. Our eyes hadn't been opened to the angels standing in our path. But now they are. Now they are open. But when, with open eyes, we continue to live the way we did when we were blind, God has a way of humbling us. He certainly humbled Balaam. But Balaam wasn't the only Old Testament example of a man living according to his own lights who God humbled in this way. You think of the example of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, this great king who was over the greatest empire at the time in the world, this king who recognized in the fiery furnace the presence of of a fourth man who wasn't meant to be there, who appeared to be like the Son of God. That king, we're told, in Daniel chapter 4, went up onto the battlements and surveyed his empire and was deeply proud of all that he had accomplished. And God, looking down and seeing that pride, determined to humble him. And he humbled him essentially by by giving him the life that the false teachers, according to Peter, possessed. By driving him mad. We've heard about the prophet's madness. Nebuchadnezzar is driven mad, but the, the way in which he's driven mad is he's made to live like an animal. This is in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. King Nebuchadnezzar at that moment for a season is made to live as if he were an animal. And he's driven out from the company of men. He's driven out into the fields. He, he lives his diet. He lives the, the way that he interacts. It's as if he were some feral thing. 
this man who was not only a man, but was an exemplar of human power and majesty and might is reduced to the life of an animal until God opens his eyes and restores his reason. And then he sings a song of praise to the God who humbled him for having shown him the world as it really is. He recognizes that in his pride he was blind to a reality that he needed to see. In the story of Balaam, the people of Israel are threatened by a false teacher. The threat is out there. In the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the threat is inside. His problem is inside. And the cure, ironically, to this problem is judgment. 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 The life of the false teacher seems to be a life in pursuit of pleasure, but it is actually a living out of judgment for sin. The root problem in both stories, the story of Balaam and Nebuchadnezzar, is the same. It's the inordinate desire for corrupt pleasure, as if it's the best we can ever get. As if the sin that we indulge in is the best pleasure we'll ever possess, and to pass it up would be a great error, because there is no happiness in this life apart from that. We live that way as if our highest good is that flawed and corrupt and polluted thing. We live like human beings driven mad. Human beings living as if they were beasts. The consequence in both stories is the same. Human beings who are made in the image of God, a little lower than the angels, Scripture tells us, live irrational lives. They live as animals by instinct, heading toward destruction, as Peter makes clear. It's not just that false teachers are living like animals. They're living like animals meant to be slaughtered. What seems like a good life, a life free of restraint, is actually a life heading towards condemnation. What I said earlier was the moral of the story of Balaam is, in fact, I think, the moral of the gospel as well, if you think about it. The moral is this. When men are blind to angels, they live like animals until... God raises up an animal to save them. So the story of Balaam, there's a hint of the good news in the bad news. The beauty of Balaam's story is that there is a ray of hope, and I think perhaps this influences Peter's choice of it, because Balaam doesn't follow through on his evil intention. Balaam is prevented from cursing the children of Israel. Instead, he is compelled by God to bless them. God raises up a beast to rescue a man from the consequences of his own willing blindness. And if you think about it, isn't that the story of the gospel too? Isn't that what God has done for us? Jesus, who was higher than the angels, became a man and as a man offered himself up like an animal for sacrificial slaughter, a lamb meant to be slain. Christ became a human so that humans living like beasts could not just be restored to their humanity, but become the children of God. There is a threat. There is a, a need for the warning. If we're honest with ourselves, if we take off our sentimental glasses and we look at the state of the church, and I don't just mean their churches, I mean our churches too, then you see that, that false teachers do creep in. Sometimes with the best of intentions, we teach a gospel that isn't quite the gospel that Scripture contains. We must always be on our guard. But the warning does have 
some good gospel news in it. The warning is saying you don't have to succumb. Yes, it's true. There are false teachers, but you don't have to follow them. There are false teachers in the church, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, but you don't have to follow their teaching. There's a false teacher in your heart telling you that there is no spiritual world, that what you see is all there is, and the only way to live is for yourself. And you don't have to listen to that either. Instead, listen to the still, small voice. Listen to the voice that reminds you that your sin is not your identity. Listen to the voice that reminds you that you are better than your behavior, that you have been made for more glorious things. Yes, you have acted like an animal, but you were made in the image of God. Listen to the voice that declares about you what Scripture says. You are no longer dead in sin, but are alive in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.